Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you know, we're in some in-between times in our study of God's Word. We're going to begin the Gospel of Mark in two weeks. And I've taken January to honestly address some things in our church that have been heavy on my heart that I think would, would warrant our attention. I'm going to wear two hats today. And you're going to have to put on two as well. This is going to be part Rick the preacher and part Rick the teacher. And you're going to be part you the congregational person and part you the student in a classroom. We're going to look at some biblical exegesis or understanding of what the text says, and we're going to look at some historical perspective to get our minds around a very important topic, and that is the, the importance of the Lord's Supper, the importance of the Lord's table, the importance of communion. We talk about this often in our church. Every time we have it, we try to highlight it. We try to do what we call fence the table to put high fence around it so that we understand who is the one to be able to partake on this, but there is so much confusion about the Lord's table. And I would even add to that so much neglect about its importance that I think it's important for us to pause and consider the Lord's table today. We're not gonna take the Lord's table today. Hopefully this will allow you just some information and some biblical uh, instruction and encouragement to be able to prepare better when we do. Paul gave instruction to the Corinthians, a church that was out of order, and part of putting them in order was to right a wrong ship of understanding about the Lord's table. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this to remember me in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats in the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep or are dead." But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. One of the most perplexing dates in the history of the church is July of 1750. Jonathan Edwards, arguably 
the most significant Christian thinker to minister on American soil was fired from his church. After a ministry extending a quarter century, 25 years, his congregation voted him out. And the gravity of that situation is underscored by the fact that only 10% of the congregants voted to keep him. There was a 90% vote of his being dismissed as their pastor. The core of Edwards' commitments, as you know, are captured in his 70 resolutions. We've looked at those many times in the past. But there was an unwritten resolution that found its way into the irritation of the church that caused them to fire him. Why was Jonathan Edwards fired? The answer might surprise you. In fact, I don't know of a single pastor in recent history who was ever let go for this same reason. But if you wanna know how to live a life of resolve like he did, this issue should be important to you and to me as well. Edwards was dismissed from his Northampton church, listen, because he held and taught and preached that communion and the Lord's table should only be taken by a repentant Christian. Now, the reason this sounds so strange underscores the problem for many of us. Few people then and few people now understand the meaning and importance of the Lord's table. Understand the function of the Lord's table. Now let me give you a little background to this hill, proverbial hill that Edwards died on with his church. Edwards' maternal grandfather was the previous pastor at the church who preceded him. His name was Solomon Stoddard. And he taught everyone openly that you could all receive the Lord's table. Anyone could receive the Lord's uh, 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 table, could take communion because it imbibed, it gave grace. Even to an unbeliever, it could be salvific. It could, it could produce thoughts that would bring you to an understanding of Christ. His thought was they may receive the gospel by considering the death of Christ in taking communion. Great thought but biblically unfounded. Edwards was a student of scripture. He knew and taught well the passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, that only repentant believers should be allowed and encouraged to take the Lord's table. When pressed by the church, to allow unbelievers to take the Lord's table. Now, by the, by the way, by allow, this means that there would be times when Edwards would point out people in the congregation and say, this is not for you. When he expected people in the congregation to tap each other on the shoulders and say, brother, you need to get things right before you do this. But when he was pressed by the congregation and the church leaders, to let anyone and everyone participate in communion or the Lord's table, which is the celebration of forgiven sin, some of that sin people were holding on to. Edwards would not be moved. By holding this conviction, Mr. Edwards proved his faithfulness to God was more important than being liked in certainly any position. And his church put it to a vote and voted 
90% to 10% to fire him. <laughs> Even after he was fired, he kept preaching faithfully for nine months because they couldn't find another pastor. <laughs> Unheard of. The greatest theological mind to ever touch American soil was then dismissed to be a missionary to Indians. The highest level of education was a fifth grade level among most of them and over half couldn't even speak English. I want to discuss both historically and biblically for just a few minutes the importance of rightly understanding the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table And I hope that by the time we're done that you're going to look forward to the next time we celebrate it and you'll come with a different perspective both biblically and historically. I think that in some sense you can outline church history based on the views of the Lord's table, based on the views of communion. And a sermon on the Lord's table is so serious that I think it requires very special handling. I've been looking at this for weeks Honestly, in a little bit of fear and trepidation of, of talking about these things. I also genuinely believe that a church's health is first and foremost determined, assessed, quickly understood by how important the Lord's table, how important a role the Lord's table plays in the body. It's so challenging in looking at this not to know, to know what to leave out. Why preach a sermon on the Lord's table? I'm going to lean on our friend, Dr. Ryle, to help us. Uh, no one in the English language has given defense as such a, an ardent defense of the Lord's table as J.C. Ryle. He says this, It's impossible to overstate the importance of the Lord's Supper. I have a strong and growing conviction that error about the Lord's Supper is one of the most common and dangerous errors of the present day. And he was writing 150 years ago. I think that's true today. He goes on to say, perhaps no part of Christianity is so thoroughly misunderstood as the Lord's Supper. And I wholeheartedly concur. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the Lord's Supper? Well, in Acts 2.42 and in 1 Corinthians 10.16, it's called the breaking of bread. In 1 Corinthians 10.16, it's called communion. 1 Corinthians 11.20, it's called the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 11.24, we get the word Eucharist from that, from a Greek word, meaning thankfulness. And if you've attended church, any church, for any length of time, you have no doubt run into a little ceremony where someone eats some bread and drinks some grape juice or wine. And the question is, do you know what it means and do you know how important that celebration or that memorial or what some call a ritual, do you understand what that means for your, for your soul? Because I think, I really believe, if you understand what's involved in the Lord's Supper, you will find the basic elements of growing as a Christian in every other part of your life. In fact, a clear understanding of the intention of the Lord's Supper is your soul's best safeguard against the delusions of false doctrine and against the worst delusion of false profession, meaning that we're allowed to entertain sin gone unchecked and still maintain a profession and a confession that all is well with our soul. 
So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna briefly look at this text and then we're gonna look at some, some, uh, how important this was in the history of the church. And we're gonna go fast. First of all, I wanna find with you two resolutions required for approaching the Lord's Supper. Two resolutions required for approaching the Lord's Supper. You can put in parentheses and living a gospel-centered life because it's the same thing. They're synonymous. Two resolutions, two things you need to resolve your own heart to, borrowing from Edward's commitment, required for approaching the Lord's Supper and a gospel-centered life. The first is in verses 23 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. It's this, remember the Savior's precious death. Remember, don't forget, remember the Savior's precious death. Verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, I got this from Christ, referring to the uh, account of the Last Supper. He no doubt had spent time with the Lord, but also had the gospel writer's account and had interacted with, the, interacted with the apostles who were there at that Last Supper where the Lord's table was instituted. Then he gives some historical data that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. I wish we had time to just explore this. I find it interesting that Paul calls that last night He describes it by the night in which he was betrayed. He didn't say the last night. He didn't say the last supper. He associates the betrayal of Judas with this table. Why? If you'll go back and study the the narrative, because the Lord's table was instituted immediately after Judas left the room. Matthew 26 talks about this. Verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is what it means. I got ahead of myself. He instituted it right before Judas left the room, which made it all the more heavy and with gravity. He gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the Passover bread, which was the celebration of the Passover of, the, of God spearing the firstborn of the um, Israelites in Egypt. Unleavened bread, meaning it had no yeast, symbolized the Jewish hasty departure from Egypt. But the Passover bread represented the physical deliverance of the people. And now Jesus was changing it and saying, this new celebration is going to represent a spiritual deliverance. Listen, let me say it once as clearly as possible. No one sitting at that table, none of those men, none of the women who may have been serving, no one believed that when Jesus took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body, that that was his physical flesh. Nor when he took the cup, did anyone think that those were red corpuscles that they were drinking? It was obviously symbolic. The key to the whole phrase is not the elements themselves. The key to the whole, the key to the whole celebration, rather, is in the little phrase, in remembrance of me. You do this to, to remember me. Now, listen, friend to friend, brother to brother, brother to sister, let me just tell you, the genius of God. He instituted this moment in the life of the church to remember him because he knew we would forget. 
that we would need constant reminding of what? His death. It should surprise no one that he did this. Forgetfulness is one of the it's one of the awful consequences of the fall, right? If you don't believe me, two words will communicate your inability to remember. Car keys, right? How many times have you looked for your car keys? Let me ask you this. I'm just, I've gotten to the age where I left my office just a few yards from here. I, I was trying to leave my office just last week looking everywhere for my car keys, which were securely gripped in my hand. Just go to the internet. There's memotome.com, rememberit.com, 101reminders.com, on and on. How many times have you tied a string around your finger, written a note to yourself on the garage door, take out trash, written a note on yourself? I have alarms I now put on my phone to remind me of things. We are always in a fight against forgetfulness for so many things, but never more than forgetting the precious death of our Lord. I'm getting so forgetful that I've recently called people and they said hello, and I answered with, and hello to you. (laughs) Because I have forgotten why I've called. (laughs) Or even worse, you dial a number and it's ringing and you think, oh no, who am I calling? If you're under 50, just rejoice. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup, said this is the gospel, the covenant, new covenant, my blood. As often as you do that, when you do it, do it to remember me because you'll forget It's a direct reference to the blood Jesus spilled on the cross as our substitute. Exodus 12, you don't need to turn there. It's such a, an interesting passage. Because before they would slay the Passover lamb, the family was to take it into their house for five days. A little lamb. Why? To develop affection for the little lamb as a pet. Then on the fifth day, the father would take it, get on his knees, cup its chin in his hand with a long blade, slice his throat. The whole family would stand and watch as the lamb struggled and died in its own blood so that he could say to his family, this lamb died instead of you. And when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, saw him coming for baptism, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, doesn't just cover for a year, takes away the sin of the world. I think the Lord's Supper puts us on a high mountain so we might gain a better view of the glories of Calvary we just sang about. It should humble us, cheer us, encourage us, sanctify us, restrain us. It should change us. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're a preacher. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're, you're, you're reminding yourself that he is alive and he's coming back. He's also the one to whom we give account. I love that he's coming back. 
You know what the word Maranatha means? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So the first is we, we remember the Savior's precious death. That's what we're called to do by doing this. And we do that because the Lord knew that we would be tempted to forget. There's a second resolution required for approaching the Lord's Supper and also for developing a gospel-centered life, and that is examining your own sinful life. We talk about this often at the table, examining your own sinful life. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Mr. Ryle says this, a sense of our own unworthiness is the best worthiness we can bring to the Lord's table. And a deep feeling of our own entire indebtedness to Christ for all we have and all we hope for is the best feeling we can bring with us, end quote. Do we examine? Do we examine ourselves as this text tells us? What does it mean to examine yourself? It means to remember the things for which you are so joyful are covered by Christ's death. It means seeing sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin, examining patterns of sin. When you come face to face with the Lord on the cross, that's intended to make us keenly aware of our sin that put him there. And the gravity of that, who, the one who died is never lost. 1736, Charles Wesley penned what I think were the, the most precious words outside of the canon of Scripture. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That question is to be remembered and answered at the Lord's table. Now, I have a horrific fear that some in our assembly could possibly fall into one of three errors in thinking about communion. I'll give you them briefly. First is you idolize it. You idolize it, which is the Catholic view where you actually make it, turn it into an idol. The Catholic view was that the bread literally became the body of Christ and the, the, the wine literally became the blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. It was transformed. And the reason that's significant is transformed so that Christ can be re-crucified in that moment, which is another way of saying what he did on Calvary was insufficient and not enough. It's blasphemous. Or you may neglect and ignore it. Well, I don't really need to come to church on, on Sunday night. I know they're doing the Lord's table, but it's not that important. I see it coming up on, on Sunday morning, and I, don't, I have a tummy ache, and I, I'm not going to go to the Lord's table. It's not that important. Or you might misunderstand it and think it's more than it is or less than it is. That it somehow makes you a super Christian or that it's nothing other than a, a, a time you get together and remember things and go have lunch. Or you might, you might receive it without examination, which here in verse 29 says is 
grievous and dangerous for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, don't do this lightly, Paul says. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You know what he's saying? You may have physical disabilities and you could possibly even die from taking the Lord's table without an examined life. That ought to frighten you. But even more so, it ought to sober you. And even more than that, it ought to make you grateful that communion can become the stop, the car pulled over, the, the, the parking lot where we stop. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the place where we have a moment of personal retreat and examine ourselves and put a stop to patterns of sin and confess sin and see ourselves in the mirror of God's word as he sees us. So many people have talked about revival. Every time we have the Lord's table should be a personal revival. He goes on, verse 31, if we were judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. In other words, you take care of your own repentance so God will not discipline you. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that he will not condemn us along with the world. Hebrews 12, the ones God loves as a father, he will discipline so when you come together, he basically says, don't come hungry. This is when they would literally tear a piece of a loaf apart. And he says, don't come to get food. Come to celebrate and remember. My friend Wayne Grudem says this. The meaning of the Lord's Supper is complex, rich, and full. When we participate in it, we symbolize the death of Christ because our actions give a picture of his death for us. When bread is broken, it symbolizes the breaking of Christ's body. When wine is devoured, is poured rather, it symbolizes the pouring out of Christ's blood for us. Critically important. So let me ask you biblically, do you understand what communion is and what communion isn't? The Lord's table. Do, why do we do this? Here's the danger. I've heard this argued so many times from different pastors. How often should you do it? I know churches who do it every time they meet, Sunday morning and Sunday night. I know churches that do it once a quarter, every uh, four months, every three months. I know churches that do it every four or five months. I know churches that do it twice a year. I know a church that does it once a year on New Year's Eve. The danger in both of those extremes is if you do it so often that you become desensitized to what it is, that's the danger. But if you do it so seldom that you forget what it's about, that's also a, a danger. So we've been looking at this as a staff pretty intently and our, our, our goal is to begin to do it opposite morning and night, I think twice a month. It's not something we tack on to the end of a service. It's soul examination and critically important. Now, change hats. I want to take you to church history classroom for some historical perspective. To gauge the importance of a proper understanding of the Lord's Supper, we need only examine the 45 terrible months that Queen Mary Tudor reigned in 
England. From February 4th, 1555 to November 10th, 1558, Protestants, non-Catholics, were put to the ultimate test about their convictions regarding the Lord's Supper, communion. History knows Mary Tudor as Bloody Mary. Someone recently said, yeah, Mary, Queen of Scots, or Bloody Mary, different Mary. This is Mary Tudor in the Tudor family. She came right after a failed attempt to put Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen, um, on the throne through a wrongful execution of lineage. And then that was, she followed uh, Richard VI, uh, the boy king, and his father was Henry VIII. So that gives you a little bit of perspective where we are. Very few have any clue why Mary Tudor was called Bloody Mary. Let me open the door and let you in to understand that. Mary was a staunch Catholic. That's why they didn't want her, the, the Protestants, and specifically Thomas Cramer, uh, who was the, the king's privy council, uh, didn't want her to come to the throne because they had worked so hard to turn England from Catholic to Protestant. They feared that it should marry be, uh, who was, the, by the way, the rightful heir to the throne. Should she come, she would undo the Reformation in England. So through a long, drawn-out process, you can read um, Faith Cook's excellent book, The Nine-Day Queen, uh, about um, um, Lady Jane Grey. They put her on the throne, only nine days, cast her away. There's another whole debate that she had with, uh, with Cardinal Feckenham on uh, the, the Lord's table itself chief Catholic scholar in England, and she completely, as a 15-year-old, obliterates him theologically. She was ultimately beheaded, Mary's cousin, Jane Grey. When Mary came to the throne, she began to undo the Protestant Reformation. Remember, Luther nails his theses to the door of Wittenberg in 1517. This is 1555. This is, this is about the internet. Things are moving very fast. Mary was infuriated by the Protestant Reformation and she sought to completely obliterate it from England, from the UK. The standards she used to test for life or death of a Protestant was communion. The Lord's Supper was the field on which the theologies of Catholicism and Protestantism would play out. As I said, the Catholic position is that communion or the Eucharist is a re-crucifixion of Christ for sin that the bread and the cup become literal body parts of Jesus. It's called the real presence. Jesus is really there in the elements because they become him so that he can be re-crucified. The English Protestants, however, rightly believed what we just taught, what Paul taught, that it was a celebration, it was a memorial, it was a remembrance. And they also believed that to participate in the Catholic Mass was to commit blasphemy. They would not stand to see that Christ's death was insufficient where he had to be crucified again. So Mary made a law 
that if you denied the doctrine of Christ's real presence, the Catholic doctrine of communion, of the, of the Eucharist, then you were guilty of heresy and condemned to be burned at the stake. And England began holding its breath to see if she would enact that punishment and if so, whether the Protestants would hold to their convictions and die at the stake. 227 men and 56 women were burned alive. And this is why. Because they held to what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. Now we would say they died for the gospel and you would be right because their understanding of the gospel was so clearly tied to the understanding of the Lord's table to remember him and so clearly convicted against the wrong Catholic view that they were willing to give their lives up for this. Let's turn a few pages of church history to put an exclamation point. And let me just say this before we get into this next section. It's not my intention to sensationalize, but to have you understand how our older brothers and sisters viewed the importance of the Lord's table. Let's start with John Rogers. John Rogers was a pastor at Smithfield. He died on the 4th of February, 1555. Let me quote from J.C. Ryle, and I will quote from him pretty extensively in the next few moments. He had assisted Tyndale and Coverdale in bringing out the most important version of the English Bible, a version commonly known as Matthew's Bible. Indeed, it was, he was condemned as Rogers alias Matthews. This circumstance in all human probability made him a marked man and was one of the reasons he was the first brought to the stake. On the morning of John Rogers' martyrdom, he was roused hastily in his cell in Newgate and hardly allowed time to dress. He was then led forth to Smithfield on foot within sight of the church of St. Sepulchre where he had preached and through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor. By the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby, whom the diabolically cruel Bishop Bonner had flatly refused him leave to see in prison. He just saw them briefly walking to the stake, hardly allowed to stop. And then as he walked to the stake, he repeated the 51st Psalm. Ryle writes, up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that the dignitaries would allow such, these dignitaries would allow their bodies to be burned for the religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr under Mary, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even a French ambassador who was there watching this described the scene and said that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. By God's mercy, he died with comparative ease. On the last night before his execution in his cell at Newgate, 
It is said that he slept so soundly that his jailer had to wake him up in the morning to tell him it was time for him to dress and prepare to go to the stake. He was happy because he knew however much he might suffer in the fire, he would go to heaven. He neared Smithfield. He saw his wife and his children. She had begun, been, been refused permission to have a final meeting with her husband. But when she was standing by the roadside near Smithfield with her 10 children, she was happy to see him because she had prayed that she would just be able to exchange glances with him before he was executed. He stopped and see her. They prayed quickly. He exchanged a smile, a few brief words with her, and then was ordered to go on, and she was firmly held back from him. Nicholas Ridley, in his book, Bloody Mary's Martyr, writes, For Roger's death came quickly. As soon as the fire was lit, the fire burned fiercely. He held his hands in the fire and went through the motions of washing his hands as if the fire were cold water. Then he drew them from the flames, held them aloft in the air, and recited a prayer and died soon afterwards. First Marian martyr. John Hooper, there are over 200 of these I could give you an account of. John Hooper, and this is again Bishop Ryle, when Hooper arrived at his spot, He was allowed to pray, though strictly forbidden to speak to the people. There he knelt down and prayed a prayer which has been preserved and recorded by Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Even then, a box was put before him containing a full pardon if he would only recant his view of communion. His only answer was this, away with it. If you love my soul, away with it. He was then fastened to the stake by an iron around his waist and fought his last fight with the king of terrors. Of all the martyrs, none perhaps except Ridley suffered more than Hooper did. Three times the fire had to be relit because they would not, the the, uh, wood would not burn properly. For three quarters of an hour, 45 minutes, he suffered and endured mortal agony. But Fox says... He neither moved backward nor forward nor to any side, but only praying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Receive my spirit. By the way, 7,000 people came to watch his burning. There was a blind boy who was there watching Hooper burn. He said, this man has enabled me to see the light of the gospel. Two were burned back to back, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. In our church history tour this last year, we stood where these men were burned at Oxford. Ryle writes, on the day of their martyrdom, they were brought separately to the place of execution, which was at the end of Broad Street in Oxford, close to Belal College. Ridley arrived on the ground, uh, arrived first, and seeing Latimer come afterwards, he ran and kissed him and said, be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or strengthen us to abide in them. They then prayed earnestly and talked with one another, though no one could hear what they said. And after this, 
they had to listen to a sermon by a wretched renegade named Smith and were forbidden to make any answer. Ridley's last words before the fire was lit were these, Heavenly Father, I give thee most heartily thanks that thou hast called me to a profession of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord, God, please have mercy on this realm of England and deliver the same from all her enemies. Latimer, who was about 80 years old at the time, his last words were like a blast of a trumpet. He said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. That's what David told Solomon. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. When the flames began to rise, Ridley cried out with a loud voice in Latin, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Latimer quickly died, being above 80 years old. But Ridley suffered long and painful, painful, painfully from bad management of the fire. And then finally bowed his head in death. Thomas Cranmer, chief privy to King Henry VIII and Richard VI and Lady Jane Grey, was arrested. Mary hated Cranmer. And she promised him if he would recant, she would spare his life. And so he recanted. And then she said, you've done too much harm to me, I'm going to execute you anyway. And then he recanted his recantation and said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die a Protestant believing the right doctrine about the Lord's table. He told the people who were watching him what is illustrated in the slide that When he would go to burn, that he would hold his right hand out into the fire and let it burn first since it signed a recantation of the gospel truth he believed. And he held it there until it burnt to a stump. Can I give you an account of a woman that in Ridley, uh, Nicholas Ridley's book, Bloody Mary's Martyrs, was so so heart-wrenching to me. I don't have a slide for this. Ridley says this, the Channel Islands were in Mary's realm in the summer of 1556. A case arose in Guernsey which had repercussions that continued long after Mary's death in the reign of Elizabeth I. A woman named Catherine Kalshwin lived in St. Petersport with her two daughters, Perrotine and, and Gillimore. Perrotine became involved with a woman in friendship, uh, Vincent Gossett, who stole a goblet and tried to sell it to Perrotine. Perrotine informed the authorities that this was stolen. She wouldn't buy it. She was turned in and flogged. And in revenge, a conspiracy was held up against her because she was a Protestant and believed in the gospel and did not believe in the real presence of the Catholic Eucharist. She was sentenced to be burned to death and at her trial did not tell the judge that she was eight months pregnant. When the fire was lit, the heat 
the fire caused Peritene to give birth to her baby son, who fell into the fire while the flames burned around him. One of the spectators rushed forward to save the baby and pulled him out of the fire and laid him on the grass. A man-at-arms picked him up, and he was handed from one officer to another until he was given to the sheriff in charge of the execution. And the sheriff ordered his men to throw the baby back into the fire, and he was burned with his mother and his grandmother and his aunt. Why look at these? These people died because of their understanding of the Lord's table. And the understanding they had of the Lord's table was so biblical, it was attached to the truth of the gospel. One more illustration. It's meaningful to me as a pastor. In 1553, John Calvin laid out his view of the Lord's table and its importance. A group of people called the Libertines had created a conspiracy against Calvin. They believed and openly taught that you could live an immoral life and come and receive the Lord's table and be in good standing with the church and there was no problem with that. One well-to-do Libertine, Berthelier, was forbidden to eat the Lord's Supper Calvin said, you will not defile the Lord by eating the supper. And he appealed to the city council, did this man, because Calvin wouldn't let him take the Lord's table. Remember, at that point, they came up to the table and received it, and Calvin said, no. Berthelet came back with swords and people who were going to kill Calvin. In fact, if you look at the slide, you can see a man reaching for his sword. And Calvin said this, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the table of my God. That's why we take the Lord's table so seriously at Mission Road Bible Church. Calvin said you must examine yourself and that should cause repentance It's not just something we do a few times a year or every few weeks. It's a a nice little ritual where we sing songs. It is a checkpoint in life. It's a remembrance of the Lord. It's an affirmation of the gospel. I just want to challenge you and encourage you. This was so important to our older brothers and sisters in the Lord that they would die for it. Shouldn't you and I arrange our lives around the celebration of the Lord's table as a memorial? 
We're not coming to watch Jesus be recrucified. We're not coming to get special grace from doing this. We're coming to enjoy the full manifestation of grace that comes to us in the gospel with each other and to proclaim the Lord is alive and he's coming back and he has expectations to meet a holy bride when he does. I have dozens of pages of illustrations and stories of men and women, young and old, who said, I would rather die than misunderstand the priority of the Lord's table of remembering him and examining my life in my own Christian faith. Do you get it? Do you know? Do it, what, what is your conviction about the table? If you're a Christian, it ought to ever be growing and increasing. If, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't given your life by faith to him, your sins can be completely forgiven by believing that he died in your place for them. Your sins can be completely obliterated before a holy God because he took them on himself and died in our place on the cross. You can have hope to live forever because he didn't stay in the grave but rose from the dead. You can have purpose and meaning in your life, hope, contentment, and peace no matter what happens in your world because the Lord promises to sustain you and be with you and not leave you as, a, as an orphan or ever be somewhere you're not. What kind of fool would say no to the gospel? Don't be that kind of fool. Please, I beg you, don't be that kind of fool. What would you do? If you came to the church and we were celebrating the Lord's table and there were some men outside the door and said, are you gonna go re-crucify Christ in the communion? You said, no. And they said, if you believe that, we're gonna take you up on the hill and light you on fire and you're gonna be dead in just a few minutes. When I ask that question of myself, you know what I think? I don't know what I'd do. I just don't know. But it's always, it's been said throughout church history that dying grace is only given to the dying. <laughs> it's not given beforehand. I don't think anyone's ever gonna call us to die for our view of the Lord's table. But the Lord will call us to account on whether we're examining ourselves and remembering him.